Hello, and welcome to our special Creation Care episodes of Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing Proper 6, Called to be Partners in the Care of Creation, from the Honoring God and Creation Supplemental Liturgical Materials. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Phil Hooper, SMMS, who serves as Associate Priest at Trinity Episcopal Church in the Diocese of Northern Indiana. Phil has interests in writing, contemplative spirituality, and creation care. And the Reverend Jazzy Bostic, who is a Kanaka Maoli woman serving St. John the Baptist and Malohilu Lutheran Church in Waianae, Hawaii. She and her wife are foster parents, currently fostering a wee one. They have a small homestead consisting of raised garden beds, a flock of hens, a hive of bees, a dog, and a cat. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on this special Creation Care episode of Prophetic Voices. I'm so excited we're starting this. Why is Earth Day something our church should be focusing on? It's important for us to remember that the call to creation care, the call to be in relationship with the rest of creation, like this is part of our mandate, both as an institutional church. It's one of the priorities and themes that the church is focusing on. Also, it's just part of our mandate as part of the gospel to recognize and reflect on these themes. This aspect of our church life, of our identity as Christians, I think it doesn't get as much attention and focus as it ought to. Mm. So I'm thrilled that we're talking about it today so we can explore why that is so and how we can more fully live into this mandate. Yes, I think that's absolutely right, Phil. I also think, I mean, I'll be honest, sometimes I see Earth Day on the calendar not too long after Easter, and I think, well, is it really necessary or (laughs) business as usual? Do I really have to like change the bulletin and like mention it in my sermon? (laughs) So I will say like, I do think it's important to highlight. It seems almost like every week there's, you know, oh, it's Women's Month and it's Black History Month and it's all of these things which are so important and which taken all together can be somewhat overwhelming. So I would say it's not just important to celebrate Earth Day like this one time change your liturgy, but as Phil said, to think about how creation care really impacts us, the work we do, is part of our call in the gospel, and how it affects our communities, because we all live on the earth. We all breathe air. We all drink water, right? These things which are elemental to our being, Mm. which are important to lift up to God, to bring in our prayers, to lament those times when we have fallen short of being good stewards. I think Earth Day is important. And I think just the focus on creation care bringing that back into our awareness, not just to last for one Sunday, but to continually affect the way that we preach and live in community. Absolutely. Hmm. As you were saying that, Jazzy, it reminds me too, like as a liturgically oriented church in the way that we are, there aren't as many opportunities on our sanctoral calendar to really focus and think about these things. All of our feast days are about people, which is wonderful. We are people, (laughs) (laughs) the people of God. And yet, I think whenever we do have an opportunity in a sort of focused way, Earth Day being a great example, to really think about, oh, what about non-human creation? You know, what about all the rest of the story of which we are only one part? How do we really tend to that? Hmm. 
in Lakota culture, we always talk about being a good relative. And then we think about relative in the broadest sense, like all of creation. And so we think of, we recognize that they're not humans, but they're also our relative and we have responsibility to be good to them as well. What do you think we need to keep in mind for Earth Day this year? What's up right now that you think is important or maybe we should be focusing on? I think in every community that's going to be somewhat different. Here in Hawaii, for me, it's Red Hill, the gas leak from the fuel tanks that are stored at Red Hill, which is also a larger conversation about the ongoing military occupation here in the Pacific. Mm. There are quite a few places actually this year that military leases are expiring or are up for renewal. One of them is Barking Sands on Kauai. And so I think just the questions that that raises about how we are in relationship to the environment, often what military occupation means is that there are gun ranges, right? And weaponry is being tested on particular areas of land so that we can keep ourselves safe, said with air quotes around it, from attacks from others. But one of the things that I keep thinking about is like, we're keeping our country safe, but what about like our people, right? Mm. Our people, the people here in Hawaii are not being kept safe. Our water is being polluted, right? Our land is being really abused, really heavily abused. And when you think of earth as a relative, I wouldn't let somebody use my relative as a punching bag, Mm -hmm. right? I wouldn't let somebody practice gunfire on my grandma. Right. So I think that kind of relationality is both important for us to think about in terms of what's around us and like our particular communities. Because I think what comes up around Earth Day here in Hawaii is going to look nothing like potentially what comes up for Earth Day in New York or in Arizona or whatever, right? To my mind, at least, it's really, really highly localized. I think that's exactly right. You know, I'm currently living and serving a community in the Midwestern United States, and the challenges and realities here look very different, even if the fundamental principle and consciousness that we cultivate is the same. Like you said, Jazzy, the risks and problems that we're facing as a community here look different. As someone is thinking, what what do we need to keep in mind on Earth Day? I think what Jazzy just did, I think, is a great sort of template for what any particular person should do, which is if I don't know already what the issues are in my community, in my region with regard to creation care, maybe this is a really good opportunity to learn, to look into that, educate myself about what's going on Mm. in my local community. Because while we are all fully interconnected, I think it's a really good place to start by understanding what's going on in your own home, Mm. in the land and the landscape that you know and love and care about where your family and friends are living, that's going to resonate in a way that I think just sort of a very broad, generic, save the earth kind of messaging isn't going to really resonate because it's just so broad, so big, so even overwhelming for some folks. What liturgical ideas do you have? I guess Earth Day doesn't necessarily have to be a Eucharist, but I like the idea of having a Eucharist because we think of the bread and the flour and wheat growing. That's what I think of anyway. And I'll share one that we did. The guy who did like creation care for our diocese and he came and brought like wheat berries and wild rice and we like hand milled them as he was talking about what was going on in our area with the water and conservation, all of that. And we were hand milling, we made our own Eucharistic bread that then we used in the Eucharist right after church. So instead of a sermon, we did, it was a sermon, but like we were making the bread and he was talking about creation care at the same time. I thought that was pretty cool. I love that. That's beautiful. 
the most obvious thing that comes to my mind is it would be a great opportunity to do whatever kind of service it is, Eucharistic or otherwise, do it in a way in which you are in touch or present to the world around you. If you have an outdoor space, obviously this would be a perfect opportunity to make use of it or to venture out into it. Mm. I know we have a diocesan program here. If you've ever heard of holy hikes or programs like that, where you do a contemplative walk on a trail through some space, and then there's a time for prayer or Eucharist, mm-hmm. I mean, this would be a really great opportunity to get involved or to form something like that in your local community. But even if a Eucharist isn't possible, I was also thinking the readings that we're going to talk about and the different propers that have been provided, they're wonderful. You could adapt them to multiple settings. So maybe you feel like having a whole Earth Day Eucharist is not necessarily viable in your particular setting, but you could take these readings and do just like a simple morning prayer. We do like a weekly morning prayer gathering at a coffee shop. And I thought, well, it'd be really cool to take these readings and just do a morning prayer service with these and then have some time for conversation afterwards. That's much more sort of simple, stripped down version. But I think there are lots of ways you could engage the content, no matter which type of service you're able to offer. Phil, I love that idea of just like move your body to an outside space, get grounded, right? If you're in a place where you can be barefoot, like just feeling sometimes that earth or grass beneath your feet. Mm-hmm. You know, yoga practitioners talk about that, like the yeah. kind of practice of being barefoot is ancient and wise and has so many sort of genealogies I'm not aware of or educated about, but I know that it makes a difference for me, right? I can feel it in my body when I get grounded in that way, it makes a difference. And so I think that's a great idea and something that easy and that simple can really impact and change the way that we experience holy space, experience interacting with God, I also think, Shaniqua, what you said, I mean, that's so beautiful to be able to like mill and make bread and then use it as Eucharist. For some of our communities, like wheat doesn't grow in Hawaii, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And so just pointing out like Jesus didn't use bread and wine because it was like, you know, some fancy thing that he went to buy, like he used it because it was what they ate and drank all the time. Yeah. And I think just making that connection and maybe playing with the idea of what Jesus says, you know, in our words of remembrance, like anytime you drink this, anytime you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. What is it that the altar is an altar, but it's also a table and that, you know, bread and wine are sacramental because of the words that we say and the way that we gather around them. And our words of institution say anytime right? Mm -hmm. What is it when we gather with friends around a loaf of bread at Olive Garden, right? Like, how is that also maybe sacramental in its own right? That kind of awareness starts to bridge the divide between what's inside of church and outside of church. If you can see creation as belonging to God, then you are always, always in God's presence, no matter where you are or what you might be doing, because we're always in creation even when we're inside of a house even when we're you know in a airplane even when we're whatever we are right we're always in creation jesse you made me think of like as you were talking also maybe our connection to the food that we eat that maybe the eucharistic food we eat but also maybe just the food we eat in general what might it look like if we you know you're in hawaii so worked on a taro patch or 
you know, whatever it might be helping out, like growing something or planting a garden or how, you know, I could see something around that getting incorporated into this too. Yeah. Really good opportunities probably for youth formation around Earth Day, different activities. I'm sure there are a wealth of them out there that could be incorporated. I'm thinking in my own context where some of these conversations are a bit less familiar to the people that I serve. You know, a really simple, straightforward way to work this into what you're already doing is to remember your opportunity with the prayers of the people on Sunday. Mm. That's a really great opportunity to just work in a particular mention, reminding people just that this is happening. And if it's not too cold, you could also just be outside. Like if you have a garden or outside space, you could move part of the service out there. I know, Jazzy, you said one of your places is outside. Like you roll the mm -hmm. altar out and I could see that. We used to do mass on the grass sometimes. And then we also did one at the lake when I lived in Wisconsin. Everybody would get their kayaks and stuff. And then like they'd come in time all together. And then they have mass in the middle of the lake with all the kayaks and canoes together. It was kind of cool. There's a lot of passing of things. So every, everybody had to be a lay Eucharistic minister. I, I don't think everybody was. So we just didn't tell the bishop about that. But yeah, there was a lot of <laughs> passing around this stuff. Let's talk about Ezekiel. I really love this passage and just the imagery that it brings up. There's this river coming from the temple and the water. What water is coming from our temple or what water needs to come from it? And what might our temple be? Your last question, Shaniqua, is a good one to start with. What is our temple? Depending on how we answer that might impact what we understand to be flowing forth from it. The temple is the church in whatever way we want to talk about that. That's one thing. If the temple is more our sort of economic or broader social system, maybe I conceive of, of it in a different way. I think whatever is flowing from the various institutions in which we operate is of questionable quality, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is clear and life-giving. There are streams of beauty and life-giving water flowing. I think even I see that within different local communities and within the church. I think the fact that we're having conversations like these now is a sign of life-giving water, at least coming from somewhere that we can reflect on these things. But when I look at the widespread environmental degradation and the lack of concern or care or even conversation around these issues, both in the church and certainly in the world more broadly, we have a lot of cleanup to do in the rivers that we are standing alongside these days. Hmm. That was so eloquently put and so right on. The prophecy in Ezekiel is so beautiful. Right. I want to believe that on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. And I know exactly what Phil said is true. Like we have polluted a lot of our rivers. Our trees are often sick, right? Or mm -hmm. not getting enough water because we've diverted what should be a river and taken that water for something else. As I read it, less of a like pat on the back of like, look how beautiful and life-giving our waters are and look how much fruit we have and all of that stuff and more of a bit of a call to reevaluate like this is what it should look like mm -hmm. right? and what it does look like is something different so there's discordance and disconnect and we have to do some repair work we might have to reevaluate what we're putting in at the river just that imagery of river really makes me think heavily. I think it's a quote that I've heard attributed to Gandhi. I'm not entirely sure about, you know, if you keep pulling people out of the river, at some point you have to ask who's throwing them in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think in that way, this is 
really a yeah justice kind of feeling passage to me Mm -hmm. not just about environmental justice but also about social justice right what are we doing upstream that is devastating people downstream from us and how can we live in a way such that like all of our actions are taking care of one another Hmm. as you were talking i think you were talking about it practically or physically about polluting the rivers but i was also thinking about it metaphorically how has our tempo polluted the river right like when we only allowed men to be clergy or when we paid people of color less than we paid white folks or you know all these different things that i think also pollute the river if we think metaphorically if we think about it yes of course this is a prophecy right so we we can think in the best of everything everywhere the river goes it gives life what do you think that river could be to you or as we think about that prophecy what is that river is that god is that jesus is that beloved community i often see water as spirit Mm. because of the way that like water carves out a space where there is no space and that you know a persistent drip can like whittle away a stone (laughs) yeah Mm-hmm. That speaks to me a lot, just the way that the Holy Spirit sort of is and the fluidness, the shapelessness of water. I think I see the movement of the Spirit in the river. That's the sort of part of the triuneness of God that sticks out to me. Especially in the context of the conversation we're having, I'm very much drawn to thinking about these questions and these images more literally and less metaphorically. I think because we so often read descriptions of nature and creation in the Bible or in scripture and interpret them in this very sort of metaphorical sense, which they are, they function in that way on one level. But I think sometimes if that's all we do, then it's to the detriment of really actually attending to the literal rivers and land that we stand on and forgetting like that all of those things have a role to play and a stake in God's work and healing of the world. It's not just about nature as a pretty backdrop for the story of our own personal salvation or something. So when I think about everything will live where the river goes, honestly, I hear that as an invitation to go walk down the street a few blocks from where I live and like stand on the literal banks of the St. Mary's River and sort of just think about the way in which I and all of us are sustained by that gift of that life-giving water and the role I have to play in ensuring that that continues to be the case by sort of whether it's repenting of the harm that we've done to creation or being actively engaged in its healing and it's sort of lifting up its value. I feel drawn into the material, into the physical realities sort of embodied in the passages. I hope we can do more of that in our worship conversations around these things. Yeah, that's so well said and so right on. These passages as metaphor and what you just said about having nature as a pretty backdrop for our personal salvation story. Oh, yes. (laughs) So real and like such a trap. I have totally preached those sermons. We just had recently in worship Psalm 23. Like that's a really good one to use as like those still waters, those green pastures, right? Like this beautiful kind of metaphorical way that God is present with us. And yeah, I think what you're saying about like literal physical embodiment and physical places and spaces, so, so, so important. Mm. So yeah, thank you for bringing that to us and for reminding us of like how important that is to be in our bodies and to be in the physical space, not just in the pretty metaphorical land.
mm. reminding myself too as I as I offer it. Yeah. I'm wondering about that part where it says its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. When I was reading it, I was thinking about things like Superfund sites or like other areas where there's deep harm. But then I also was thinking about salt at the time was really valuable too. And so I didn't quite know how to take that. Is that like a, what well, I can't remember we used to call it when I was in college, hug the nasties. Like everything is good and valuable, even if we might not like it, right? Is it that? What do you think about that? I leaned, I think, more towards the latter as I was sitting with it, because yes, in the context of Ezekiel and the vision, salt was valuable and, of course, still is of great significance and cultural importance to so many people. I lived in Nevada for a number of years out in the desert where it was very, very dry and sort of it looked like to the casual observer that there wasn't a lot of life happening. And yet I came to understand and appreciate and really love the way in which life did thrive there just in a very different way. The idea that even the arid landscape where the salt is, is still part of this prophetic vision of God's sort of ultimate healing of the earth. And yet not everything looks the same. Not everything is just a green river valley, but there are also other types of landscapes that are also holy and good in their own way. Mm. That's a re reminder to me to love everything that I see, to look for the value in it, just in the way that I'm called to look for the beauty and the value of every person that I come across in my discipleship. Mm. I mean, I think at first the like reading that feels easier to me is the one that says like, you know, if people are not agreeing with you or I mean, coming from the Episcopal Church where we've like split a number of times, mm -hmm. right? This can feel like a justification for that. Shaniqua, what you were saying about the metaphorical temple and the poisoning, not ordaining women, not ordaining gay folks, right? Like this can be a real sort of like cut your losses. They're just going to be swamps and marshes. Like mm. you go on being your green self girl and like <laughs> just let those swamps and marshes. <laughs> That's just how they're going to be. But yeah, I think the harder, probably more disciple filled, more faith filled <laughs> is that all things are used for God's purpose mm. and God's purposes are not my purposes, right? And that there is good in everything, even if I struggle for it. And I think that is so much the message of the cross, right? This symbol of shame, the symbol of vulnerability that is used for something so powerful and used for resurrection and used for new life. And so even when we can't see the end of that story, God is still writing it. They always say, you know, like the Indians, I'm using air quotes, uh, but like my people, right? The Lakota Dakota, we like, we used all parts of the buffalo. And like, so even the parts that you might not think are beautiful or good, we even used the buffalo poop because there's not a lot of trees in here. So we would collect the dried buffalo poop. And that was like our fuel that we would use oftentimes inside. Cause it's like a, the buffalo does all the work of taking all the grass and condensing it down and turning it into like a nice brick that you could put on the fire and it, it will keep fire for a long time and keep you warm in the winter. Yeah. As you said that, Shaniqua, it reminded me, there are some articles written about this, and I preached on it a while back about the passage about you're the salt of the earth. Mm -hmm. One interpretation of that passage is that the salt was used in sort of the earthen ovens of people in first century in Jesus's time, that it went underneath the animal dung to maintain the burning fire. And so I, it's just another reminder that all of these elements can work towards the good and really speak to the beauty and possibility of the story.
And Jesse, you brought up the cross. So let's move to the gospel. And this is a very short passage from Mark, but it's like, I think right after Jesus was erected, right? And he shows up to the 11 and is like, he was upset about their lack of faith and their stubbornness. Where do you think we have a lack of faith and stubbornness, especially when it comes to creation care? I mean, where do I have a lack of faith and stubbornness? Like literally in my whole life, like all the time in my whole life, no matter what. I have a lack of faith that God is really in charge. I have a lack of faith that God is good sometimes. I have stubbornness that I think things should go my way and I have a better plan than whatever God has planned. And if God would just listen to me and my ideas, then maybe things would be in a better place. I totally have a lack of faith and stubbornness almost all of the time. So when Jesus is upbraiding the disciples, he is also doing the same to me. In creation care, I think my lack of faith comes when I read about climate change and the more I understand about our mass pollution of the earth, I really wonder if we can pull that back from the brink, if we can make a difference. I wonder if small efforts change anything in the wider scheme of things. I really struggle with sort of a depressive existentialism often, to be completely honest. We collectively, we, the people on the planet, are so stubborn in the plastics that we use and in the way that we've been taught to consume and in our sort of old habits. And it's so hard on our planet. Yeah, I have a lot of lack of faith in, is this actually something that I can make a difference about or that even collectively can change if we decide to? Hmm. I appreciate your openness, candor about that, Jazzy. It resonates a lot for me. Within the sphere of creation care, the environmental crisis that we all are facing, I wonder often, are we actually going to be able to do anything within the parameters that we can clearly do based on science? Are we actually going to mitigate the challenges that are already being experienced by so many people on this planet? I have to say my faith is not always super strong. And so then it becomes a question for me of, okay, well, if I don't have a lot of faith in humanity to take care of itself and do its part in taking care of the planet, then what does faith in God look like with that acknowledgement, with that acceptance? How do I trust in God's ultimate goodness and redemptive purposes and plans to bring about this vision? the one in Ezekiel, Mm. while acknowledging that really humanity now and always seems bound to put up another cross and nail all of creation to it. What does that kind of faith look like when an abundant and plentiful future is seems not just to be uncertain, but almost impossible? That's a hard faith question. And I don't have a good answer for it. I don't know that any of us do. I know there's a lot of work and writing being done right now around climate grief around how do we cope with these sorts of realizations. We're all in that together. I suppose I just remind myself that the vision exists and that the promise is there, and I keep trying to return to it as best I can. But it is a different kind of faith. It's a different kind of challenge to faith when you can't quite see where the hope is going to come from. You're really in kind of a dark night of the soul situation. And uh, I think we're going to have to navigate that together as a church body in more and more pronounced ways in coming generations if not sooner. In a lot of our more impoverished rural communities, which are often the native ones, people are complaining about other things. And like, we have churches without electricity and running water and stuff like that. And then thinking about it, I'm like, well, that actually eliminates a lot of things that 
would have added to the problems, right? You know, uh, if we had those things, like we would have had to have a propane tank then. That means we would have to have money to pay for propane and we, like all that kind of stuff. But then at the same time, I was thinking about like, that means that we use disposable dishware when we have food, right? And it means that then we probably have plastic spoons and forks and knives. And that made me think about our stubbornness of how do we change that, what that might look like. And if this were, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, everybody had their own little tray that they would bring in. We would just wash them, you know, like put a fire up and build the water and wash them by hand and stuff. But I don't think people want to take the time to do that. And maybe that's the stubbornness that we think about, or I'm not sure. But I also think there's like this fatalistic kind of sense, Jazzy. I was kind of getting that from you too, a little bit. All this to say, as I was thinking about is we're so close to like where our creation story says we came from. I don't know about other indigenous folks. Like if your creation story says you came from that area. And I wonder if that would make it different for us to think about how we protect that area. Because if we talk about the Black Hills, you can engage all the Lakota people so easily and so quickly mm-hmm. They're like, oh yeah, we've got to take care of that. That's sacred, blah, blah, blah. And how do we get that frame of thinking and bring that into folks whose creation story may not have them coming from this place that's only, you know, a hundred miles away? I think there's such wisdom in that. Yes. I really struggled when I was away at seminary and at college doing my undergraduate because that question of like how to be indigenous, not in your indigenous homeland, Mm. all of the practices I know are tied to this land, this flora. You know what I mean? Like I know Mm -hmm. how to make lay with plumeria flowers. Like you wouldn't do it with like carnations or whatever, right? Like it's just, it's a different thing. Right. And you don't have plumerias on the East Coast. They don't grow, right? They're not there. That sense of like where we belong, it makes me think of, you know, the sort of, oh, we'll just go and live on the moon and we'll go and live on a different planet. I do think there's a resistance sometimes to thinking this earth is where we belong. This is where we originated, Mm. regardless of whether we could make spaceships inhabitable for millennia, or we could make the moon inhabitable, like we don't maybe belong there, right? Like, we don't know that we've really considered that that's just like, maybe not for us. And I think if we really could connect with the idea that like, this is our home, this is our only home, and this is where we belong and where we come from, that kind of creation genesis point. I do think collectively we would understand our relationship to the earth differently and make small changes. Because like you also said, Shaniqua, a lot of times it is about just the inconvenience, right? The mild inconvenience of washing a dish. Mm -hmm. I have a laundry line outside and we live in weather that's temperate all year round, but sometimes I get lazy and I'm like, well, I'll just throw this load of towels in the dryer, right? I don't want to hang it all on the line and then take it all off. And it's just time. It's just convenient. If I really think about the impact every time of turning on that dryer, I can easily see that it's not worth it in the long run. And in the short term, the pull of convenience and the pull of ease and of comfort, like sort of creaturely comforts is so strong and often at least right now doing what is best for the environment is a slower way or a less convenient way you have to search out stores that are low waste you know or go to a farmer's market and they're not always open like a grocery store is always open Mm. so it's convenient 
and a farmer's market might be on Saturday morning. So you have to like plan your day around it. I see a lot of the sort of stubbornness in how we spend our time and the tie that we have to either a particular place or even to this earth as being a tie that we need to reinforce. As I'm listening to you both share those those insights, it kind of bringing me back to something we said earlier in the conversation about sort of learning about your community, maybe some of the challenges facing the locality where you live, environmental challenges. I'm also hearing an invitation to just for all of us, but especially maybe for those of us in the West, in you know predominantly white cultures and industrial cultures, as simple as it sounds, to just remember that you live in an actual place. Mm. You're not just a person inhabiting this sort of artificial landscape of roads and strip malls and supermarkets and things that are interchangeable, no matter which part of the country you go to, and it doesn't actually matter, you know, I can uproot and go here or I can go here and it's all pretty much the same because I can just access the same things. But to actually be like, where do I live? Like, what is this ground upon which I stand? What is the story of this place? The people who were here, the other forms of life that live here, the rivers, the trees, the landscape. When I moved to Indiana, where I live now a few years ago, I can't say I've done this perfectly, but I have tried to, as best I can, really sort of get out and explore and understand, like, what is this place? Because it's so different Mm -hmm. from California, where I lived before, both culturally, but also just sort of geographically and like, you know, going up to the Great Lakes and like kind of getting reacquainted with them and all all these things It amazes me sometimes in conversations with other people locally, some of whom have lived here maybe their whole lives, and they're like, huh, interesting. I've never gone there. I've never really done that. I've never, whatever. And maybe it's just because it's so familiar that they don't necessarily think about it. I don't know the reason. I do think there's something, you know, if we're thinking about how do we reconnect, how do we understand the impact of our choices and our actions with an eye towards the future and some sort of hope for the future, maybe a good place for some of us to start if we haven't already been formed in this way is to just sort of be like, where do I actually live? what is this place in which I find myself and how am I a part of it? And how is it a part of me? I think that could be a really cool journey of discovery for many of us. As you were talking, I was thinking about even just, I think I said this already, but like our connection to our food. And I remember working with some young native kids who were in the Twin Cities, which is very urban. And it was like this urban native development is kind of the hood, so to speak. We were growing vegetables and they could understand that the vegetables were in the ground. So they, you know, they'd see the leaves. And then one day we like pulled up and she was like, what is this? And she looks at it and I'm like, that is a carrot. And I remember she's like, it doesn't look like a carrot. And they're like, because she's used to the little carrots in the bags in the store. And so like now, you know, then she you know, wash it and shave it. And like, now it looks like the carrot you've probably seen before. She's like, oh yeah, it kind of does. But it was just like how disconnected folks are from the food that they have. <laughs> What does it mean to proclaim the good news to the whole creation, which is kind of the commandment that God goes at the end? And what might proclaiming the good news to our non-human relatives look like? I think St. Francis, who said, you know, preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Proclaiming the good news to our non-human relatives is probably not going to look like using our verbal language, right? It's going to look like using our non-verbal language. And so to me, that means like keeping a compost tumbler in my backyard and trying Mm. to remember to 
put my banana peels in there and not conveniently place them in my trash can (laughs) like to sort of these like small shifts that bring me closer to the earth and make me just more aware of what my non-human relatives have to deal with if I choose the convenient option. I often like feel very, very grateful for the worms that are in our compost and the worms that are in our soil. I think if you have a chance to grow something, we have a small garden. It is such a transformative, life-giving place for me because I encounter God there all the time. I get to share what is extra with other people, which brings me so much joy. It's like a place where there is no sort of extra societal nonsense. There isn't capitalism. Mm. There isn't, you know, this kind of production worth tie. There isn't any of that. And for me, that has been one of the greatest gifts ever. If you have space for it, if you're curious about a garden, like I think that is a really beautiful place to sort of begin to proclaim good news. For me, that feels like one of the ways that I am at least trying to, with my actions, preach that gospel, right? Preach care and compassion and love by tending to small seeds and trying to be careful when I pick beans off of the plants that I'm not by accident pulling off their leaves too. And things like that, it just invites me into a carefulness and into an attentiveness to what God is already up to. Yeah, that brings me a lot of joy and fulfillment. I will say, Jazzy, you know, St. Francis preached the sermon to the birds. So maybe you could preach the sermon to the worms in your compost pile. I would totally love to read it if you did it. (laughs) (laughs) As you asked that question, Shaniqua, I was thinking, well, fundamentally, what is the good news that we proclaim? Mm. The good news is everything is connected. Everything is related. Everything is beloved of God. Everything and everyone are drawn up into God's life through the love that is made manifest to us in the created body of Christ in which we take part. To Jazzy's point, like we proclaim that when we live as if it is true, when we live into an embodied value and ethic of love for our neighbor, which includes our non-human neighbor, when we show reverence for all of creation, when we show care, when we stand up against the forces that pollute and destroy and kill. Whenever we do those things, I think we're proclaiming the gospel. It's not about getting everything saved in a very narrow sense. It's it's about saying, oh, like I'm part of this story. You're part of this story. I'm going to live into that story and let's keep writing that story together. Whether I am a human being, whether I am a other type of animal, whether I'm a plant, whether I'm a worm in the compost pile, whether I'm a river flowing by, we are all singing the same song to our creator. That's the best news of all. I was thinking of like, yeah, living into what we would call it, Wolakota, the state when all things are in right relationship. How are we living into right relationship with ourselves, each other, creation, the creator? Yeah. How are folks of color impacted by climate change and environmental injustice? And what light do you think these readings can shed on that? And maybe not just folks of color, but think broadly, maybe disproportionately affected folks. 
there are people who are disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate change and other forms of environmental degradation that we're contending with. I mean, whether it's rising sea levels, there are certain people in low-lying areas around the world that are already being forced out of their homes, including indigenous people in certain island nations. Hmm. And, you know, forced migration due to different sort of climate impacts. Like this is becoming a crisis in multiple locations. And it's not just a crisis for those people, though they're the ones suffering most acutely. But ultimately, it's something that for which we all as one family uh, on this earth bear responsibility. For me, as I think about the readings that we've been reflecting on, especially when I think about the Ezekiel reading, that vision of God's abundance, I think it's just important to remember that that kind of abundance, if it's to be true and authentic, it's for everyone and it incorporates everyone and everything. We who live in economically privileged parts of the world, we who can, for whatever reason, insulate ourselves more easily from the impacts of climate change, we are not actually living into that vision of health and healing and salvation, while our brothers and sisters and siblings around the world are literally and figuratively drowning. This vision that God offers is not just one for a favored nation or a favored group group of people or a favored race or ethnicity. It's a vision that has to incorporate everyone or it incorporates no one. False paradises that certain people might create for themselves to sort of say, well, I'm fine. The world's fine. I don't have to think about what's going on elsewhere. That's not what these passages are talking about. That's not the good news. That is not the prophetic vision. This vision is one that has to be universal and fully inclusive of everyone and everything. Absolutely agreed. I think both the river in Ezekiel and also the themes of adoption in Romans mm-hmm. remind us of our interconnectedness, mm. right? There's always someone or someone's upstream. There's always people downstream, like just that water connects us, right? That water flows between all of us, that whatever we are doing, even if in this country we are downstream of others, there's still more people who are downstream of us, right? Who pay further consequences to our actions in terms of creation care. And maybe those are human relatives, maybe they're non-human relatives. Any of those kinds of themes of like connectedness in the readings would really help us talk about like what we do or choose not to do in terms of creation care and how we tend to the environments around us is not just to elevate us or to like save one of us, but is really has to be a like for everyone. It really has to be collective. And if we don't do that tending, and if we instead pollute, then that also sort of lowers everybody, right? Like that Mm also has a negative impact on everybody. So yes, well, depending on social location, there are more or less immediate effects of climate change or immediate vulnerabilities to those effects that we might feel or be aware of. We all live in a climate, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. whatever the sky is going to do is going to do to everyone in my zip code, not just to my house. And so that kind of community belonging to each other is really something that I think creation care helps to enforce and is 
the vision that God gives us of beloved community, right? That we are all connected, that we are all in it together, that we are all beloved of God, as you said, Phil, and that we're not just sort of trying to do it alone, or we're not the only ones suffering. It's not just me and my nuclear family, right? But this sense of concentric circles, maybe of belonging, is really a good way to think about the justice part of these readings and how other people are affected by our action or inaction. Hmm. So you brought up Romans, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Parts of that passage make it seem as though creation doesn't have its own autonomy, which I kind of struggled with in my culture. Creation has lots of autonomy. We talk about different things that it does, and it plays tricks on us, and you know, different kind of things. But it was almost like predestination. How do you see creation in us in regards to freedom and autonomy and predestination? I definitely don't think in terms of non-human creation as predestined to suffer or to be discarded or to be Mm. not valued in God's ultimate plan and purposes. I definitely utterly reject that sort of paradigm, which unfortunately in subtle ways shows up all the time in various spheres of theology and teaching, that whole sort of we're going to escape this planet, we're going to escape our bodies and go to a better place, some sort of quote-unquote heavenly realm that looks, you know, very sort of disembodied. I don't think that's the actual Christian promise or the Christian hope. Sort of the way I was understanding it is that, you know, he's operating from a paradigm of sin, humanity's sin, and the way in which all of creation is impacted, if not drawn into, the sort of fallen state of humanity, however we want to understand what that means. In a way, he's saying, you know, we as the people of God who through the mercy of God have been incorporated into the body of Christ, we are the beneficiaries of the first fruits of the spirit. He uses that term in the passage. Implicit in that is that if we have been saved through our faith in Christ and through our redemption in Christ, then it's actually incumbent upon us to do our part to extend that same healing and love and redemption to the rest of the world, Mm. this world that has been impacted and put into bondage by our own sin. So Paul is making a really strong case for creation care, basically, in this passage. Absolutely. This totally nullifies the narrative that Christians and Christian faith has nothing to do with caring for the earth. It's like literally bound up in our own sort of understanding of our salvation and what we're supposed to do with it. That's awesome. Romans preaching creation care is a pretty cool discovery for me, honestly, as I pondered that. Similarly, earlier in the passage, it says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. And I was like, what do you mean the revealing of the children of God? Like we're already children of God. What is it that we're being revealed? But I think if I understand that more as like for the children of God to step into their responsibility. Yes. Mm. And the way that you explained it, Phil, would sort of back that up, right? Like yeah. it's not that we're not children of God and then we're going to like be revealed as such or something weird. <laughs> but like we aren't stepping up, right? We aren't fulfilling our kuleana, our responsibility to be and to act with integrity in accordance with those first fruits of the spirits, right? We haven't been fulfilling what we're supposed to be doing. And so in that sense, like, I'm sure the creation is like, hurry up, you guys. It's time, right? The time is now. Like, you guys got to get your act together. You think you're the first fruits. God gave you the good news. Like, (laughs) what is taking so long? I totally 
love this sense of like, it is incumbent upon us to step up to and step into our role collectively and maybe even personally like never have. Certainly as a church, I think we're beginning to reckon with that, right? By having creation care as a focus, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by encouraging preaching towards Earth Day and this kind of stuff. But we have a long way to go. This is the beginning of a stepping up and stepping into that I think creation is groaning inwardly in waiting for that day to come. In Indigenous communities where we have this two-spirit role, we talk about not coming out, but we talk about coming in. Mm. You know, if you learn about your two-spirit role, then coming in is like you coming into your community in that role to fulfill that role of being like a healer and a reconciler and in your community. And I think Paul's kind of talking in that same way, or you were mentioning it too, like now that we know that we are part of the body of Christ, we have this role that we have to come into. We all, whether we're LGBT or not, we can come into our role as being part of the cares of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you think it means to be adopted? Paul talks about creation and us waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. What does that mean to you? And what would an adopted creation look like? It looks something like that vision in Ezekiel that we've been reflecting on today. It looks something like Tree of Life in the book of Revelation. It looks like an entire creation that has been drawn into, made fully part of the inner life of God, the triune God, drawn into the loving communal abundance of the Trinity, such that flourishing and possibility and mutuality is what is pervasive in and through everything, which is kind of a hard thing to imagine. It's a gift that we have this vision, have this hope sort of given to us both in scripture and I think just sort of implanted in our hearts through those first fruits of the spirit that we continue to dream of and long for such a thing, even though we look around us, it's like, what? (laughs) That's not how things are. Mm. The idea of being adopted into God's life, into God's family means finally feeling like we are at home, at home in ourselves, Mm. at home in one another, at home in God, in a way that I think we as people wandering through time and space and contending with our own brokenness and frailty have not been able to experience. But the promise is that we will. The promise is that there is an open door waiting for us, and not just for us humans, but for everything that God has made and called beloved. You know, I'm a foster parent. My wife and I are foster parents. And my understanding of adoption has been so complicated or deepened or changed because of that experience. Mm. I used to read passages about being adopted by Christ as being like really sort of taken up into God's family and like totally belonging to another thing. I mean, the role of a foster parent is different than an adopted parent. Although sometimes the two, you know, you go from one to the other. My sort of understanding of the importance of whatever your biological family is, whatever that first family is, even if that first family is a place where there's been trauma, where there's been abuse even, it is still the role of a foster parent, at least, it is still to like support that first family and to understand that is always a part of your child or this child's life, right? Hmm. So an adoption is not so much a whisking up and away as it is like this super, super wide, like often uncomfortable embrace of everybody connected to this kid who you know, now has maybe 
eight sets of grandparents and mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, five or six parents and like who has this much more sort of complicated, but also interconnected family tree and family history. I'm not sure how that necessarily fits with what Paul was sort of getting at. I just bring it to say, like, I think adoption maybe has less to do with, like I said, sort of being whisked up and away and like into another history and taken away from the terrible thing that we currently live in and more like wide encompassing embrace where we are both belonging to God's family and still belonging to this world or belonging to each other. I just think that concept of belonging is so much more complicated for me. The more I learn about the ties to our first families, even when our first families are hard places, and even when ultimately they're not the best or safest places Mm. for us to grow up, those ties are still existent and like incredibly important and need to be tended to. And perhaps that trauma informed sort of care lens is something that maybe does cross over into creation because no matter what happens to creation as a whole next or like in God's adoption of us, there will have been a trauma background just because of how we are all living with each other now. Mm -hmm. We are all victims of and perpetrators of that with one another, both human and non-human. What you said really reminded me, well, it reminded me of a couple of things. I think sometimes as Indian people, we think of adoption as a bad thing because of what happened with the history and Native children being adopted out into white families, then losing that first family and how important that first family was, right? But then I also was thinking about Lakota culture, we have something called hunka, which is like the adoption of relatives or making of relatives through adoption. And you're right, you absolutely have your, your same family, but I always think of it like as you increase your sense of belonging. Uh, but it also increases your sense of responsibility. So you have to then, you know, whoever adopted you, however they adopted you, whether they're your mom or brother or sister or whatever, you have responsibility to their family too now, just as they have responsibility to you. So you have this greater responsibility to care for one another, but also then you have greater resources to care for you too when you need it. I didn't think about that until you said that, Jazzy. So thank you for bringing that up. It brings to my mind the sense of kind of what we were getting at in earlier portions of the conversation that a life in which creation and God are in full communion with one another, that it's not an erasure of what has come before. It's not a an escape from, you know, just a forgetting of all that we have been and known and gone through. It is a blessing. It is a finding the beauty and holy and the redemptive possibility within all of that and even within its complexity. I think that's an important thing for us to remember and teach and consider and preach and whatever we do and as we think about these things is that we are on this journey together and as complicated as it is, like it is a beautiful and holy journey. And whatever God is doing with it and with us, it matters. All of creation matters, matter matters, and is not forgotten and never will be, even if it is transformed. What tips do you have for preaching Earth Day? Preach about something local. I mean, preach about something that's happening in your community, to your community. Do not use it as an opportunity to preach about what's happening in the West Coast, if you're on the East Coast or in the East, right? Like I just, it's sometimes easy to read a piece in the New York Times or whatever, and then go like, that's what I'll talk about, because that's a creation issue. But I really think the more personal we can make it, Mm -hmm. actually wider reaching and more deeply feeling it 
will be both for us and for our congregants. I don't think it's necessarily, while you can preach an effective sermon on sea level rise and how that's affecting Tuvalu, if you're not in Tuvalu, I would encourage you to find something that is local to like where you live or figure out how what you're doing directly in your home is contributing to that sea level rise Mm. rather than sort of making climate change or creation care like a problem or an issue that is happening somewhere outside of yourself, make it something that is happening inside of yourself and in your place. I completely agree with that. I would also add that I think it's perhaps good for us to remember when we're preaching or speaking or teaching on these things that we as people of faith, speaking from a Christian perspective, we have a unique voice and thing that we can offer in sort of the broader cultural conversation around climate change and creation care. It's a crisis both of data and ecology and science and things, but it's also there's also a spiritual crisis going on in the ways in which we are, as we've talked about, disconnected from the world in which we live and the land upon which we stand and the rest of our sibling creatures in the world. I think it's an opportunity for anyone preaching to both speak to the urgency of the challenges that we face, but also the love that God has for the world, the the love that God calls us to have for the whole world. I think that ongoing balance of love and urgency is something that's the line we are always walking in our preaching as Christians on any matter of justice. It's both and. It's both love and concern. And how do we sort of balance those two with one another so that we're honest about the challenges, but also offering that hopeful reminder that God's love permeates all things. I think each of these readings has like a slightly different flavor. So if maybe thinking about what you want to preach on, like, you know, if it's something prophetic, then maybe do the Ezekiel or, you know, if you're trying to do happy clappy, maybe do the Psalm. I really don't think we should preach happy clappy only. Like we really need to make it concrete and like bring folks and challenge folks to do something to make change. Mm-hmm. Uh, this shouldn't just be daisies and unicorns and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I would encourage folks to think about like, I don't know, Phil, I'm scared and be like, oh, but like some sort of prop when they preach. Like when I did the Ash Wednesday, we planted as, you know, part of the sermon, we had everybody go and plant seeds that were going to grow all Lent. And so maybe thinking about how might we incorporate something earthy into the sermon itself, something for folks to hold or touch, or maybe for outside folks take off their shoes and they're on the grass feeling it. Get creative. It's all about creation. (laughs) Whatever will speak to the community that you serve. Mm, Yeah. Is this a very sort of early stage of introducing these ideas? Or do you have people who've really been thinking about and wrestling with these things for a while? That could definitely impact how you preach and how you bring these things to bear on the conversation. Well, thank you both so much for being willing to be guests on this special Creation Care, a very first one of Prophetic Voices. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your experiences and getting up early and doing all of the things. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And may there be many more Creation Care podcasts and thoughts for us to share in. Amen. Amen. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. If you want to learn more about creation care, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash creation hyphen care. Thanks to our guests, Phil and Jazzy. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If we planted a seed in your heart, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine.
you're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.